y'all. I have to be honest. I did not realize how relevant this episode was going to be back when I sent an email to Professor Derek Spires at Cornell University because I want to talk about his book, The Practice of Citizenship, Black Politics and Print Culture in the Early United States. But turns out history really does repeat itself. And 2021 is looking very similar with Black people and other non-white communities talking about citizenship and inclusion in citizenship practices, particularly voting. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The way that Black people imagined, wrote about, and practiced citizenship in the late 18th century, all the way up to the Civil War. And definitely stick around to the end to learn about the time that Black people in Pennsylvania lost the right to vote because of, get this, accusations of voter fraud from the party that lost an election. First, a little context, because before the Civil War ended and the 14th Amendment happened, There was no national definition of what a citizen was. It was up to individual states and just kind of people in general to figure out and craft what citizenship was and who was a citizen. And in that ambiguity, Black people had an opinion about their inclusion in citizenship and what citizenship meant. And that's really where your book starts. It started because I was reading one Dorothy Porter's early Negro writings, a fantastic anthology of early Black writing and digging in the archives. And I came across like a host of addresses and pamphlets and all sorts of other things coming from free Black communities addressed to fellow citizens. And I just had a basic question. What did it mean to be a citizen before the 14th Amendment? And on what grounds could Black folk call them citizens? Part of me was thinking, surely they didn't really mean that they were citizens. But then now you read Frederick Douglass in the 1854 speech on the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and he says, no, I am a citizen. I pay taxes in New York State. I vote in New York State. I own property in New York State. I am a citizen. And you're right. The Constitution, the closest thing to a federal notion of citizenship we had up to that point would be the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which sort of adjudicated citizens of the several states being able to travel and conduct business between states. And then a series of naturalization laws beginning in the 1790s that explicitly restrict naturalization to European immigrants, to white immigrants. But that doesn't do anything for folks, especially Black folks who are born here. And even before the 1787 Constitution, The Articles of Confederation explicitly hammers out that Black people can be citizens. And they debated this and they say, no, we won't restrict citizenship on a race basis. So it is a bit of a making it up as we go sort of thing before the 14th Amendment. Yeah. And part of making it up along the way was tying race to citizenship where it hadn't been before. Right. And from the revolution into the 1820s and 30s, Property is a much more stable identifier. Property and gender. If you're a property man who's lived in a space for a certain amount of time, that defines who has access to the rights and privileges of citizenship more than anything else. And you can sort of track before the Revolutionary War with all of the legislation around enslavement, but you can really track starting from the 1770s and 80s forward, how property and whiteness slowly become the same thing. And this accelerates in the 1820s as states 
start delinking voting rights from property and sort of relinking it to whiteness so that all white men by the um, 1830s and 40s more or less have access to the right to vote. And what's really interesting about that and Black citizenship at the same time was that America was kind of hammering in on this definition of citizenship being defined by like who you are. You're a white man, so you're a citizen. But Black people were imagining citizenship and talking about citizenship as what you do, which is very different. I tend to talk about it in terms of access because even between white men again and again in court cases is if you can do X, Y, and Z, we consider you a citizen. Citizens vote. Citizens own property. Citizens conduct business. Citizens get passports. Citizens travel freely between states. And what you have is as states like Pennsylvania, New York, and other places codify whiteness as the standard for citizenship, Black citizens will step up and say, wait, wait, no, There has not been legislation against voting. We have voted. We served in the Revolutionary War. We served in the War of 1812. And you'll see them citing a letter from then General Andrew Jackson praising Black service members during the War of 1812 in the South. We own real estate. We make money. We contribute to society. We do all these things. Therefore, we are citizens. And they're doing this in part because birthright citizenship doesn't seem strong enough to cohere. So they never give up the notion of birthright citizenship. But we're talking about folks, especially in the northern states who, in a place like Pennsylvania, when the federal constitution is passed, there is no racial restriction to voting. Pennsylvania doesn't restrict voting rights along racial lines until 1838. So this is working backwards. And so if you're thinking about how do I stake my claim to access to citizenship, to the rights of citizenship, when we've been doing this work all along and all the state has to do is say, nope, we're just going to restrict access points to white men. That's the identity play. And so what Black activists begin articulating again and again is that you can't restrict voting to identity because or citizenship to identity because it's what we do. It's what we make. We make citizenship. I'll give you a quick example. New York State revises their constitution several times across the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And their 1821 constitution, amidst a lot of debate among the white delegates to the Constitutional Convention, none of these moments are sort of unanimous. There are people fighting to not have racial restrictions. But one of the arguments that gets made in favor of restricting the vote away from Black men is that newly emancipated, formerly enslaved people need a kind of on-ramp to civilized citizenship in ways that white men don't. And so in New York State, they pass a constitution that maintains a property requirement for Black men. They require $250 in property to have access to vote. And so the argument that Black activists like Henry Highland Garnett, Samuel Cornish, and others will make in the 1840s is that voting isn't a sort of privilege that the state grants access to. Political participation isn't something you grant access to or need a passport for. It's something that people inherently do. It's basic human nature. And so they will say, if you restrict our rights to vote, that energy will go somewhere. 
It can be productive in the terms of the conventions we're holding in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, or it can be destructive in the form of riots and other things. But people need access to the levers of self-government. Yeah, people, they have civic energy. They want to have self-determination. And if laws don't give them the ability to do that, they're going to find extra legal ways to practice these kind of inherent human things. And since you brought it up, I do think we could talk about the political conventions right now, because that was a point where Black people were exercising self-governance and voting and civic energy. Even while white people were saying, as you just said, Black people can't do that themselves. They need like a guide to do it. They were doing it themselves. Yeah, they're proving their own point in a lot of ways. And the color conventions movement, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg of that movement. It starts in the 1830s with the National Convention held in Philadelphia in direct response to colonization attempts and encroachments of slave power on free Black communities. So it really starts as a way for Black communities across the nation to come together and provide for their own common defense to get a real sort of national strategy going. And so we have several national conventions happening across the 1830s. And then so the late 1830s, we start seeing state-level conventions happening, starting in Ohio in the late 1830s, and then New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. And the movement explodes after the Civil War. But these pre-Civil War conventions You can think of them, on the one hand, as the run-up to what would become the sort of civil rights movement moving forward. On the other hand, as James McCune Smith, Black activist out of New York, will say, each state's laws governing things like voting rights, access to public transit, access to schools were so different that communities needed a more fine-tuned approach. So in New York, they ran petition campaigns. They lobbied and traveled to the state capitol in Albany across the 1840s. They pushed legislation initiatives in Pennsylvania. They're a little bit late to the game when it comes to convention movements, in part because like, the major push for them was the disenfranchisement that happens in 1838. And after 1838, you get a slew of Pennsylvania state conventions happening and It really does point to, like you said, this kind of homegrown infrastructure. And one of the arguments that these convention goers will make, we need to act independently because anything we do under the sort of heading or organization of our white allies or our white would-be allies will just be taken as these are white allies using sort of Black activists as a mouthpiece. And so there is a real a real importance to saying this is a convention that anyone's welcome to come to, to be in the audience, but this is a convention of Black men, specifically men. There's a gender paradigm here, too, that Black women work against constantly. But this is a space where Black men are coming to conduct business, and it's important for everyone to see that it's an orderly business following parliamentary procedures with statistical data on Black business and income, et cetera, and with addresses that speak to broader public. And since your book is a lot about print, you do spend a lot of time in that section of the book talking about the way that these conventions were publicized before and after, because part of 
doing these conventions was the publicity of showing what Black citizenship looked like in practice. Right. These conventions begin and end in print. It's very difficult to distinguish between the kind of physical space of the convention itself as a kind of politics space where business gets conducted and the importance of the publicity. So in many cases, you have sort of local meetings and conversations among activists to generate a call for a convention. And that call would get published in a Black newspaper like Colored American or Frederick Douglass's paper or the Alien American. And you'd see them getting reprinted across abolitionist newspapers like the Liberator or the National Anti-Slavery Standard. And that initial call would generate debate. And debate is also a form of publicity. And so in the case of New York in the 1840s, you'd get debate coming from both white abolitionists who thought that organizing on what they thought of as racial terms was somewhat backwards. Like, aren't we all supposed to be operating on a sense of common humanity? But then you get sort of Black activists, too, who would say, no, this organizing as a convention of colored citizens actually makes the kinds of arguments that our detractors want to make. And so just the call for the convention initiates this really fascinating conversation of what it means to organize around sort of lines of racial oppression. The supporters for the state conventions will say we are similarly oppressed along these racialized lines. The state is making race. We are not sort of bringing race to the table. It is here. And it's incumbent upon us to organize in ways that meet that need. So you'd have the debate and then people would arrive to the conventions. And the Color Conventions Project has done a really great job of sort of outlining all the infrastructure this entails from how do you travel from, say, Cleveland, Ohio to Buffalo, New York or Rochester? Where are you going to stay? Who's providing food? And these are spaces where you also see Black women providing a lot of the infrastructure. So we get to the convention and there's a ton of debates. And partly because I come from literary studies, I'm interested in the substance of the debates, but I was really interested in how whoever packaged together the convention minutes thought about that space as a collectively authored space. Regardless of the disagreements that you get in any given set of convention minutes, at the end of the day, what you're reading is a report from this collective that created itself. And that's a really powerful statement of collectivity, if not outright cohesion. And then on the back end, you get more debate in newspapers, people going home, reporting back, having smaller auxiliary meetings and communities. And so it created a real robust political network. We should definitely get more into the meeting minutes at these conventions, because the way that they packaged and presented debate and disagreement is a really interesting part of your book. I'll give you an example. One of the most famous blowups at a convention happens in 1843 over Henry Howland Garnett's address to the slaves. And it's often framed as Henry Howland Garnett. He's in his 20s. He's sort of on the political come up. He's coming to this convention to cement his status as the lead new emerging Black voice. He's going to deliver this address to the slaves as a kind of crowning moment. And on the other side of the ring, you have Frederick Douglass, this other 
major emerging Black voice who's coming to the convention, partly representing the American anti-slavery society and a sort of moral suasionist, less confrontational activism. And they clash. And at the end of the day, Douglas wins because the convention does not decide to adopt Henry Highland Garnett's address to the slaves, which one, calls enslaved people citizens. You have a right as citizens to strike and lay down your labor implements and walk away unless your enslavers pay you a fair wage. It's a labor argument. And if they don't allow you to walk away, then you are justified in defending yourself, your wives, your daughters against their violence. Douglas will say this is too much. And so this had traditionally been read as a moment where a kind of more moderate voice wins out over Garnett's address. But when you read those convention minutes, the debate wasn't really over what Garnett said. What they disagreed with was whether or not they should print it as the statement from the convention. So Douglas will come out against it and say, no, I think we should try the moral suasion stance a little bit longer. Then there are more people who say, no, this is cool, but we can't print that because the backlash would be too great. They're thinking about reception. There are people from Ohio and Pennsylvania who had been celebrating Emancipation Day and August 1st celebrations and other events and experienced white violence because of that. And so they're thinking about going back home to a very fraught territory. And then you read the way the discussion maps out and it's framed not as Douglas wins over Garnett, but as as a collective, we have decided X, Y, Z. And then you read the minutes and find out what Garnett was proposing. It's sort of a almost a sly way of saying, okay, we decided not to print this out. And yet, if you want to know what he said, here it is. So clearly, Black communities were organizing politically with or without a legal means to. And a big part of Black citizenship was critique. Critiquing America's vision of citizenship and critiquing white taste. One of the things I found interesting, especially reading conversations that were pitched as conversations between Black writers, in Frederick Douglass's paper, for instance, you get a cadre of people writing under pseudonyms. James McCune Smith writes as Communipaw. William J. Wilson writes as Ethiop. People writing as Observer. Fanny Homewood, who is Mary Frances Bashan Colder, hailing from Pittsburgh. You start to really get these fine-grained, sophisticated arguments about how public culture works. And one of those writers, Ethiop William J. Wilson, will write in Frederick Douglass's paper that the entire culture of the United States and the West in general is built up on this system of puff, boast, and brag, where when we read the history, everything white folks produce is great. And we're taught to think they're great. And they have a magnifying glass. Du Bois later will talk about this as the propaganda of history. And Wilson will say, we need our own magnifying glass. We need our own gaze for reading history, events, culture, etc. And once you turn that gaze so that you're sort of attending to Black life, not as some aberration or uncivilized space, but as a kind of center space. What you begin to see is the ways that 
on the one hand, politicians and a media ecosystem are creating a kind of public taste or catering to a public taste for a sense of white pride, white nationalism, white triumphalism. We're also talking about the 1840s and 50s where post-U.S.-Mexico war, there's this new territory opening up that needs from a kind of white perspective civilizing. So there's a great master race narrative percolating up and media and politicians feed into this, including folks like Abraham Lincoln, who in the Lincoln-Douglas debates sort of scoffs at the notion of social equality, says, I don't believe that African-descended people should be enslaved, but to quote Lincoln, that doesn't mean I won't want to be my wife. So he's catering to that. And folks like Wilson, Douglas, and others will say that this constitutes a kind of notion of beautiful white citizenship. You can also hear it in our contemporary public discourse, right? The past president will constantly refer to beautiful people, beautiful flags, beautiful X, Y, Z. That appeal to beauty had a kind of hypnotic piece to it. And so to counter this emphasis on white citizenship, on the beauty of white citizenship, Black activists turn to some notion of critique of what you might call critical citizenship or critical patriotism. So you have someone like Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, the great suffragist, abolitionist, activist, poet, essayist, short story writer, novelist, If she were around today, she'd be on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and whatever platform was getting the ear and the eye right now. She'd have a YouTube channel and a podcast. But she will say the stories we need our children to be reading aren't the Williams narrative of Washington and the cherry tree. It's the story of someone like Margaret Garner, who would rather kill her babies than see them return to enslavement. It's the story of Zumbi Dos Palmares, the leader of... Uh, Maroon Republic in Brazil. It's the stories that will lead to a strong critique of race in the nation, but also lead people to act. Martin Delaney, Black abolitionist, will call patriotism, you love the country so much that you will ruthlessly critique its ills. Because this is what you do when you love someone. You won't let them walk out looking in a kind of way. They were rethinking what it means to be a citizen along the lines of disruption, of critique, of active civic engagement, rather than a kind of focus on unity for the sake of unity, or to focus on a beautiful sort of passive union. Yeah, conforming to the existing homogenous vision of America's past and future was not how Black people envisioned citizenship Rather than that, they wanted to bring their own community values and ideals into this vision. And one of the big ones was neighborliness and being a good neighbor, both as a nation towards other nations and during an epidemic. Right. One of the things I say early in the book is that the kind of citizenship for which writers like Wilson and Harper were advocating wasn't the kind of citizenship that excluded them. So To think, how would it look for Black Americans to be included in U.S. citizenship is to radically reimagine what citizenship does and who it's for. And two of the places I think about this in the book, one, William J. Wilson, as Ethiop writes an essay titled, What Shall We Do With the White People? And he reframes U.S. history as a narrative of unneighborliness. He reframes the U.S.-Mexico war as the U.S. being unneighborly towards 
the state of Mexico, state as in nation state of Mexico. Indian removal and settler colonialism is unneighborliness. And then the penultimate act of unneighborliness is the slave trade. And on the other hand, talk about Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, two of the co-founders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. They're writing in Philadelphia in the wake of the 1793 yellow fever epidemic, where they lead members of the Free African Church and the Free African Society in relief efforts during an epidemic that gutted Philadelphia, which at the time was the nation's capital. And they're working under the assumption from the science of the day that African descended people were immune. So they go out, turns out they weren't immune. Richard Allen gets the fever and recovers. One of their partners, William Gray, gets the fever and dies. But they do the work anyway. They're carding bodies. They're visiting the sick. They're on the fly under the direction of Benjamin Rush, one of the framers of the Constitution, actually, bloodletting, administering, etc. And on the back end of this, the official historian of the relief efforts accuses Black folks of theft. And Jones and Allen respond. And part of what we get out of their response is this really capacious notion of what it means to be a citizen to be a good neighbor. And what it means to be a good neighbor, these are two theologians, isn't to look for who the good neighbor is. They draw in a parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Who should I love? Isn't some predefined set. It's the people you encounter. You show yourself to be the good neighbor by being neighborly towards those whom you have no reason to be neighborly. So what happens I ask if we scale up this notion of neighborliness from the individual level to the community level, to the state level, to the national level. Jones and Allen's answer would be that you get this really robust, reparative program of emancipation. I think I want to talk a little bit more about what Jones and Allen wrote specifically, because you mentioned the way that they use the Good Samaritan. There's a lot of Christianity and they even write in parables in their work. Oh, you're right. It's really fascinating. And they never explicitly reference the parable of the Good Samaritan. They never say we were Good Samaritans doing this work. Instead, they offer parables. And so they tell one story of a man who's sort of yelling out of his top floor in need of relief. And they say white Philadelphians passing by, they don't even stop to listen, except for kind of a more or less wealthy man who seems to be a foreigner, he really stops and tries to get people to help. But the only person who stops and actually helps is a poor Black man. They describe him as a poor Black man. Sidebar, I find it fascinating that they use the word Black to identify people of African descent in this moment. But a poor Black man stops, gives the man aid, and refuses payment for that aid. And they say, this man, out of all the people we've described, exhibits real sensibility. Like, I know I'm afraid. I know it's risky. But based on principle alone, I'm going to go in and do what's right. And that's the real sensibility. And if you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, it follows the exact structure. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is there's a man on the side of the road who's injured and Jesus uses community leaders, uh, scribe, 
the priest passed a man by. These are the people who know the law and should stop and give aid. But instead, it's a Samaritan who, in that moment, there's a kind of mutual enmity between Samaritans and Jewish people in that space. The last person you'd think who would stop and be the example that Jesus would give of the one who would inherit the kingdom of God. So instead, he stops. He not only gives aid on the road, he takes the man to a hotel to make sure he has time to heal. And then Jesus asks, who will inherit the kingdom of God? So that's kind of the subtext of Jones and Allen's narrative, right? They're positioning themselves as the Samaritans who, in the context of late 19th century United States, have been written out of the citizenship language, have been written out of the fabric of the civic narrative. But it's these people who exhibit real, true Republican citizenship real neighborliness. And that's what these critiques of the traditional idea of citizenship were all about. The fact that citizenship is not just about like a legal definition. It is about how you interact with other people, how you contribute to your community, your society. You're right. One of the things we get out of what these Black activists are writing is a different orientation between us and the state. Part of what they argue is that the state, the law provides structure for how to go about this work. The law was never meant to so completely shut down or restrict whole segments of the population from being able to determine how their community works, being able to have access to a good livelihood, being able to commune and pursue intellectual, economic, and political interests. The law was meant to give us a kind of common ground on which to meet. And the minute, this will sound familiar, the minute the law stops serving the people, the people have a right to revise the law. That's one of the big things Francis Ellen Watkins Harper was talking about, the way that one big part of citizenship is fighting for citizenship is revolution when it's not working, which is something that Black people were writing about and talking about at this time. Right. And they're drawing on the language of the Declaration of Independence remembering that some of their, by the 1850s, some of their fathers and grandfathers fought in the War of 1812, right? And so they're consuming all the things their contemporaries were consuming. They are students of common law and history. And one of my favorite moments comes in 1848, appeal to the voters of the state of Pennsylvania, that the Convention of Colored Citizens coming out of Pennsylvania, and they issued two appeals, one to their colored fellow citizens and the other to voters of the state of Pennsylvania in protest of the restrictive voting laws. And they run down the complete history of revolutionary Pennsylvania. They cite the Declaration of Independence. They cite Ben Franklin. But they're also resonating with David Walker, Black activist who published uh, Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. And they're arguing that government gets its power from the government and that by not listening to its sort of proper citizens, that is Black citizens, Pennsylvania is violating the Constitution. They're using the language of law. They're using the language of revolution. And they sort of step things up, right? First, we're going to start this petition drive. You voting citizens of Pennsylvania have a right and a duty to sign on to this to help make this state align more with its revolutionary heritage. But there's also a kind of ominous bit to this, right? If 
the state of Pennsylvania doesn't hold up its end, and by extension, the United States doesn't hold up its end, then there is a revolution coming. David Walker will talk about the wrath of God coming down on the nation. And of course, even before him, Thomas Jefferson would imagine the same thing. But there is a practical sense that unless the United States can come to terms with Black citizenship, it's headed down a dark and bloody path. And it's easy for me to say that now, knowing that the Civil War is coming, but you could see that coming even in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, that the status of Black citizens was causing friction between the states. And another thing important to note is that like, the 14th Amendment didn't just solve all the problems. Birthright citizenship meant you were born here, you get to be a citizen. But one, a whole bunch of actual citizenship practices were still denied. But also that like solved kind of Black America's problem. But there were a lot of people that didn't really solve immigration. The idea of immigrants who weren't white, who came to America, what their status was. There was still a lot in flux to critique. Definitely. And like you said, the 14th Amendment doesn't speak to indigenous Americans. It doesn't speak to immigrants from China, for instance. And you'll actually find in Black newspapers like the Pacific Appeal, Black activists pointing to the unfair labor practices towards Chinese immigrant laborers. It doesn't address the status of women and Black women in particular. That whole package of Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments set a kind of baseline. But one of the things that became really clear to me early in the project is that so much of the experience and practical work of citizenship is still left up to the states. And you can see one of the stories of Reconstruction is the states finding ways to circumvent what seemed at the time to a lot of people Black activists included, to be a new day with a new federal standard of citizenship, right? But even the voting rights amendment doesn't give a right to vote. It prevents states from restricting the right to vote. And that turns out to be a very fine and important distinction. Yeah, the book leads right up to the present because there is still so much to critique about voting rights, about what citizenship means and looks like in America right now. (laughs) Here we are again, looking at states enacting restrictive voting legislation. One of the ironies is, I mentioned Pennsylvania restricts voting to white men in 1838. They get the votes to do that in the state constitutional convention as a direct result of a contested state election. In Bucks County, I think it is, the Democrat lost by two or three votes. And they chalked that up to voter fraud among Black voters who weren't supposed to be voting. And that argument was part of what gave them to votes and the push to disenfranchise all Black citizens in Pennsylvania. Wow. Right. We talk about history repeating itself. Wow. That was (laughs) so sad. And a whole lot of a hot mess, but also... Almost every episode of this show, I'm reminded of why Black history has been such a struggle and a fight, because it is a fight to produce positive change, because there will always be people standing in the way of it who don't want to see that. And that's why it's so important to remember the struggle that has been and to continue it, because America's vision of citizenship and America are still a work in progress that won't go anywhere without work. 
we get these incredible moments, like the end of the Civil War, the civil rights moment in the 50s and 60s, where there are these explosions of reorganization. But those are quickly followed by backlash and retrenchment. And it's exactly like you said, it's an ongoing process of critique and work. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your book. That last example, I didn't realize it was so relevant. <laughs> it's scary. I started writing it as a dissertation. I still remember sitting at my desk at home during Barack Obama's inauguration. But the nature of what I was working on had me thinking, this is great. And also, the state level stuff was going in a different direction. So, yeah, spoiler alert backlash follows progress. So, if you just listened to this episode and were like, wow, other people should definitely know about this, tell them about it. Definitely share this episode, share the whole show, follow me on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. It's at We the Black People Pod, and keep fighting. All power, all people, y'all.